0: Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of Deconstructing the Bible. I'm Jason Steffenhagen, the Associate Minister at The Well, United Methodist Church in Rosemont, Minnesota. What you are about to hear is a message that I had the opportunity to give this past Sunday, and I thought it fit well with what we do in Deconstructing the Bible. So there is still one more parable to go, and that will come out later this week. But in the meantime, I thought it might be fun for us to dive into a special passage as we navigate deconstructing what Paul does at the end of the book of Ephesians and how it speaks to us today about being people of reconciliation and being people who are part of God's restoration and renewal work in our world today. Hope you enjoy. I am excited to be with you on this Sunday. Uh, we are wrapping up our series on Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. We've been spending this entire fall going through the book of Ephesians, and we're wrapping it up this week. So just as a slight recap, chapters 1 through 3, the big message going on is that you are in Christ. You are in Christ. This is your identity. You are found in Christ. You're a beloved child of God. God is inviting you to participate with what God is doing in the world. So what is God doing in the world? That's the second Part of this book, chapters four through six, is the how do you live this out? How do you participate in it? What does it look like? And Paul is culminating all of Ephesians in this final few verses where he's calling upon us to put on the armor of God, to stand firm in the world, and to do something. To do something. Now, I got to be honest, this set of verses can be a little confusing. Um, If you are uh, new to Christianity, hearing phrases like the principalities and powers, the rulers of the air, uh, the authorities, that can be a little overwhelming. Even the word the devil can be a little bit overwhelming. I remember when I was a kid, I uh, watched a video in middle school on the way in which the evil one can like come at you and take away your faith or can impact you. And I spent about six months freaking out every night before bed and would like sing a song in my head to fall asleep at night because I was so scared that the enemy was going to get me all the time. And it was such a present reality in my life that I really just needed something tangible in my life, some songs and prayers in order to to find a way to fall asleep and to feel like I wasn't going to be attacked or stolen away from God. But as I've kind of grown in my faith and tried to understand what's going on, um, as much as spiritual warfare can be a real thing, I'm not the authority on that. And so I'm going to take a little bit of a different angle. One of my favorite authors, Richard Rohr, talks about an understanding of the principalities and powers, kind of these authorities that are in our world. And the way that he kind of frames it, the the way that I'm going to kind of tackle it today is by looking at the systems that exist in our world, the things that are these kind of blanket umbrella ideas that we live under that oftentimes go unchallenged, uncritiqued, and silence us. What do I mean by that? Really simply, What I mean by that is, have any of you ever been involved in a family system where there was a bunch of tension and there was this kind of generational disputes going on, and you just kind of knew, I'm not supposed to bring this stuff up? And then, like, somebody brings it up at Thanksgiving, and it's like, oh my goodness, like, fireworks are going off and not good fireworks like Fourth of July, like, people are aiming bottle rockets at one another and shooting each other. Like, this is not healthy. Like you just sense that the system here is broken and yet you've been told never to talk about it. And the moment you do, ah, all you know what is breaking out and it's not a healthy thing. Or there are these systems in our world that we don't question. Political systems, economic systems, educational systems, uh, supremacy. Like we look at the racism in our culture and oftentimes throughout human history, throughout our history, it goes unchecked, unchallenged, uncritiqued, and then it continues generation after generation after generation. Or because we don't do something about it fully, we just have new iterations of the same type of oppression that we see over and over and over. And we're not moving toward the equity that we want as part of the body of Christ and as brothers and sisters as humans. And so we have to look at what do we do with these systems? What do we do with these things that go unchecked? What do we do with these things that silence us? And so one of the first things that Paul talks about in here is that our battle is not against flesh and blood. And so what I would like to say, number one, we must separate the individual people from the systems that marginalize and oppress. Now we participate, individuals can participate in these systems. We all know that. We all know that we participate. We participate in the families that are all messed up. We participate in systems that are messed up. We do that. But our enemy is not against the individuals. Our enemy is not against flesh and blood. There is something that we must do about the system that perpetuates what is going on. So how do we do that? That is a daunting task. There's a group of us that have been reading a book by Oshita Moore. She's a pastor up in St. Paul. um, And she wrote a book called Dear White Peacemakers, Dismantling Racism with Grit and Grace. Um, And we've been reading this together. And one of the questions that came up this last Wednesday is like, okay, this is all really good, but like, it's so overwhelming it's so overwhelming. Like, what can I possibly do? I'm, an, you know, I'm just me. I have my little corner of the world, my little space that I operate in. How can I possibly be a part of dismantling this big system that is going on? How do I do that? And, and I'm not here to tell you, like, we're going to solve it in about, you know, less than 20 minutes. Um, but I think what Paul does at the end of this chapter, the end of this book, is he kind of lays out a plan, some principles for us to grab onto that can allow us to go on the journey that God is inviting us into as as children of God. That if we truly are in Christ, we're going to participate in a new form and fashion with how God wants the world to move forward, with how God wants to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So let's take it the the first thing that happens in this book or in this chapter. We need to put on the belt of truth, the belt of truth. Now, One of the easiest ways to understand this is that there's one truth out there. There's one absolute idea. And that if we all just agreed to it, then everything would be fine. That's one way of understanding this. We're going to put on the belt of truth. There's one truth and everybody else has got it wrong except for the one truth. And if we just understand it, then we're going to move forward. That might be a way of understanding that. I would like to propose a different idea. What if this understanding of truth is about honesty? What if we need to get honest? I mean, think of a family system, a broken family system. What's happening in that family system? People aren't honest. They're not honest about the pain they're experiencing. They're not honest about the way they don't actually feel like people love them or feel like they got the, each other's back. They don't feel really invited over. They're just going through the motions. There's not honesty there. Or what about when we have these systems of racism that are in our world and one person drives down the road in a certain way and feels completely safe, but another person drives down the road and doesn't feel Safe. We need to be honest about that. Here's another way of looking at the honesty this belt of truth. What happens when your story doesn't match my story? Maybe the truth that I need to recognize is that I have a blind spot. Maybe I have a blind spot that needs to be addressed. Maybe you telling the honesty of what you've been through allows me to see the world differently. What if we have to be open to the blind spots? in our life. I remember when I was preparing for this last night, I wanted to run through this with my wife. My wife's really really smart and I just love fleshing things out with her and processing with her. And and oftentimes, I, to be honest, I really don't want her to give me a lot of feedback. I just want her to affirm everything that I've done because I'm a genius. And so, I said, "Can we talk about this?" And she's like, "Sure." She puts down what she's working on and says, you have my full attention. So I start telling her, I'm going to go through this, the belt of truth and the breastplate of justice and this and this and this. And she's like, oh, okay. And then she starts talking and I, and then I kind of cut her off and she's like, and I was like, oh yeah, that's right. You're not just telling me I'm right all the time. I actually need to listen. Right. And so I start listening and that's when she's like, hey, this is not just about an idea of truth or honesty, but it's also about recognizing the blind spots. Like, what if it's about assessing your life to see where you're missing? And I was like, oh my goodness, this is so good. And then later on, she had an idea that I'm going to cover at the end. And when she got done telling me about it, I looked at her and she goes, what? The look on your face is telling me something. I said, yeah, you should be going to church tomorrow instead of me. Like, you need to preach this sermon. Like, you just laid it all out for me. I thought I knew what I was doing. But I had a blind spot. I had a limitation. I had my understanding of what needed to be said. And then here she is with her honest story about how she's understanding and unpacking the scriptures and it brings it to a fullness that made even more sense. And it was beautiful and it was helpful. And I had to be open to listening to it. So we have to put on the belt of truth. That's the first thing we gotta do. Put on the belt of truth. Because when we have the belt of truth, when we're able to be honest and humble and listen and assess our blind spots, it allows us to participate and put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness or justice is another translation of that word. The breastplate of justice is a way of entering into the world, a way of entering into the fray, a way of going into relationship and community and family. And we do so with a certain posture in mind. Right when I present myself to community, how am I doing it? We do so with the breastplate of righteousness. Two ideas here. If we're going to translate it righteousness, one of the things that commonly comes up is this idea of purity. Right? I got to be perfect. Can't have any flaws whatsoever. That's what it means to be righteous. I don't have anything wrong with me. But how do you get to that? Ever thought about that? How? Do you get to that? So much that everything else melts away, so that you have pure silver, pure gold, something that's really worth. Something. You gotta go through it. You have to put yourself to the test, right? That's what the psalmist says. But test my heart, oh God, and know my inner thoughts. And if you don't do that, I'm not gonna show up in a way that looks like righteousness. It's gonna show up like something else. I'm not gonna show up with justice. I'm gonna show up with selfishness and greed and pride. Second idea. So, first, refiner's fire. We gotta go through it, we gotta be tested. Second idea is that if we're going to translate this word as justice, in our culture today, what does justice look like? It's the statue of Adam Justice holding the scales that's supposed to be weighted equally. She's got a sword because it's punitive. But what's the other image that we could have of justice from the scriptures? In Amos chapter 5, verse 24, justice is seen as a river or a flood of justice and rivers of mercy. Now, what do we know about a river that over time This long arc of justice that Dr. King talks about, this long movement, this flow of the river, what does it do to all the things, all the barriers, all the impediments to it? Over centuries, it smooths them out so that justice can flow. And then what does a river do to everything around it? It brings forth life. It flourishes what it's around. And so if we're going to put on the breastplate of righteousness, if we're going to show up to the world, We don't show up to just judge it. We don't show up to be angry at individuals. We show up in a way that says, I am testing myself. I'm going through the refiner's fire so that I can show up as a person of justice, willing to bring forth life, to remove the barriers that hinder us from moving into the beloved community. I am showing up differently. I'm showing up differently. So how do we do that? How do we move through this life? We put on the breastplate of righteousness and justice. Third thing, we put on the shoes of peace. The shoes of peace. I love the word shalom. This beautiful idea of justice-infused peace. This idea of right relationship, whole relationships. The interesting thing about shalom is that it's not simply perfection or the, or the absence of violence. This idea of shalom, this idea of peace, it says that there's something broken that needs to be healed. Right? And so we're gonna ground ourselves, put on the shoes, that this thing has not always worked, but that we are moving towards restoration. One of the ways in which the word shalom is used, but not translated as peace is in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. Nehemiah is in the exile. The people are in exile for 70 years. Then they get sent back to rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple, and it says it's been completed. He completes the work of restoration. That word is shalom, peace. There's a restorative process, and we are to be grounded with the shoes of peace, the shoes of restoration, the shoes of shalom, the shoes that say this thing needs to be moved towards completion. It needs to be moved towards restoration. Then Paul says this, in addition to all of these, check your blind spots, get honest, be about justice, Be about refining and moving towards righteousness. Be about the removal of brokenness and move towards peace, move towards shalom. In addition to those things, he says this, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. What is going on there? Why am I holding up a shield? And what does it mean to hold up a shield of faith? What are the fiery arrows of the devil? Let me put it this way. What happens if you're in a family system that's really broken and messed up and you come in, you hold a family picnic, you hold a family kumbaya session, and you say, we're gonna, we're gonna deal with this stuff, we're gonna hammer this out, we're gonna fix this. And guess what happens? It works. People forgive each other. People are excited about coming to Thanksgiving again. There's actually a little bit of restoration. You see people forgive each other after decades long of, of feuding and 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 being frustrated. What might happen to you in that moment? Well, that's right, people listen to me more often. I'm pretty awesome at this restorative thing. I know what I'm talking about. Have any of you ever been in a system where when you grew up, you were told, you you, you know, stop asking questions, just listen to everything I say. And you're like, man, when I'm a parent, I'm not going to treat my kids like that. But then you become a parent and your kids start asking question after question after question. And finally, you're just like, would you just listen to me? Just trust me. I know what I'm talking about. Suddenly, you in your pride your authority, and your arrogance, you have placed yourself in a position of being unquestionable, uncriticable, and you are now silencing those under your care. Want to know what you just got hit by? Not an arrow of Cupid. You just got hit by an arrow of the enemy because now you are putting yourself in a place of unquestioned and uncriticable authority. And, tr- and we all fall into this. I fall into it with my six-year-old. He starts talking and I'm like dude I'm 40 years old you are 6 stop it. Like you <laughs> I don't need to explain myself. <laughs> I will eat ice cream whenever I want. Right? <laughs> like <laughs> why do you and mom always order food? Because we like to eat better food than we give you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Obviously these are not heavy issues compared to what's going on here. But the idea the idea is that too often we can become the very thing we're trying to move away from. So we have to hold up the shield of faith. Why do we hold up the shield of faith? Because faith, faith says this, I'm willing to keep learning. I don't know it all yet, but I trust there's someone else who does. And if I stay in relationship, if I stay connected, I will keep growing, keep learning. Children do this best, which is why Jesus says they have to have a childlike faith. Children, you know what they do at school? They learn something, then they unlearn it because it was almost right. Like, you know how you get told as a little kid there's no such thing as like negative numbers or imaginary numbers, but then suddenly you get like into sixth grade and they're like, there's imaginary numbers. You're like, what? You told me there wasn't. Like, well, there actually is right? And so I'm sorry, you can go below zero. You can go below zero. Like, how is that possible? Right? And so you, you learn something, you unlearn it, you, un, you learn something new, and then you unlearn it, and then you learn something new. That is the human process. We learn and unlearn and learn and unlearn. The thing about it for adults is we don't call it learning and unlearning. My friend Stephanie Spencer and I were having this conversation the other day. It's called deconstruction, right? Deconstruction. Now, what sounds a little easier? unlearning something or deconstructing something, right? Like that's what we do as adults. We need to deconstruct and it's such a process. We have to tear down brick by brick by brick the things that we've constructed that give us meaning because we need to continue growing. So we have to hold up the shield of faith that says I'm not done yet. I'm in relationship. God is working on me. God is changing me. God is growing me. I am moving towards Christ likeness. And how do we do that? We put on the helmet of salvation. We put on the helmet of salvation. Why is it a helmet? Why is it the helmet of salvation? John Wesley talks about salvation being something that we participate in. We put it on. And we move into the sanctification process. We move into this process of growing into Christ's likeness. And it's a journey that we're gonna be on forever. And why is it a helmet? Because in Romans 12, two, it talks about Changing the way we think, metanoia, right? Take every thought captive, Paul writes about in another verse. We are minds. We love God with all of our minds. There's something going on with the way we think, the way we construct reality, the way that we engage the world, that we have to be a part of changing the way we think, allowing the spirit to do a work in our lives. And so salvation, the helmet of salvation, is that growing process as we mature in our faith. I want to read to you for a second from Washita Moore's book because she really captures the spirit of this passage so well. And she's talking about peacemaking in our world. And she says this, the problem with building your peacemaking on what you're against and not what you are for is that you're always prepared for a fight and always looking for an enemy. I mean, that's what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about our, our battle's not against flesh and blood, right? It's against something much bigger, much deeper, much more systemic. We got work to do, and it's not just finding the easiest enemy out there, finding the person that's caused us pain and just attacking them and knocking them down. There is something deeper going on. She goes on to say, peacemaking, however, is a nonviolent third-way response rooted in these three things. The kingdom of God's exposure of the kingdoms of this world. That's systemic work right there. God's kingdom says there's a better way to organize this. There's a better way to run this. And the way that things are running right now isn't working for everybody. We got work to do. We got work to do. Second thing she says, we got to honor the image of God in all people. Again, Our battle is not against flesh and blood. And the third thing, the forging of the community of God that creates eternal flourishing, the bringing about of justice, the bringing about of peace, that river of justice that flourishes everything around it. That picture at the end of Revelation chapter 21, where we are gathered around the throne of God, there's a river of life and the tree of life and all the nations are gathered and they're praising God. Why? Because they're all flourishing around God's justice, hope and love. Oshida is giving us a roadmap for how we change the systems of our world, namely, this this prevailing destructive force of racism. There's one offensive weapon that Paul gives us. It's the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. And it says this, Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What is the word of God? Now, it could be this right here. Know your Bible. Know know your Bible. Know the gospel. Know the truth. Know the thing that sets you free. Know the stories of people that have been broken and have been put back together. Know the stories of the systems that didn't work and how God knocked them down and then built new things. Like, know this story. The other way we could translate this, though, is that the word of God and the spirit are hearkening us all the way back to Genesis chapter one, when there was a spirit hovering over the chaos and God was about to speak for the first time. God was gonna utter life and it was gonna spring up. That God was on the sixth day gonna create humanity. And when God took the earth and formed the first human, what did God do? God breathed the spirit into the first human, giving that thing life. And so when we have the sword of the Spirit, what do we have? We have our breath. We breathe because it reminds us of whose we are. It reminds us of where we came from, and it tells us to pause. Breathe. Breathe. Because when you breathe, you're remembering the Spirit that is in you. And when you breathe, you're remembering that I need to check for my blind spots and be honest about what I've been through. When I breathe, when I breathe, I need to remember that I'm participating in justice that brings forth life. When I breathe, I'm about peacemaking that is about changing systems and not attacking people. That when I breathe, when I breathe, I'm remembering my faith that says I'm not done yet. I remember that God is renewing my mind through the helmet of salvation, that sanctifying work that moves me towards Christ-likeness. When I breathe, I have a chance to do this work. So I'm going to invite us, before I pray, I'm going to invite us to breathe for a second. In this book, which not only helps show how to do the work of anti-racism work and the building of the beloved community through grit and grace, she also invites us into these breathing exercises that just ground us in a practice. And so what I'm gonna invite you to do is you're gonna breathe in, as I say the phrase peace, uh, Prince of Peace, and then as you breathe out, I'm gonna read, I will follow you. And we're gonna do this about three or four times. I just want you to breathe. And you breathe in, I'll say Prince of Peace. And when you breathe out, I will say, I will follow you. So when you find yourself in the world, when you find yourself in in your family, when you find yourself at a school board meeting, when you find yourself struggling with the systems of this world and wondering what you can do and you don't know where to turn, breathe in Prince of Peace, breathe out, I will follow you. Give yourself that space to get back in touch with with who you are and whose you are. So I'm going I'm to read, and when I say Prince of Peace, you breathe in. And when I read I Will Follow You, you breathe out. So here we go. Prince of Peace, I will follow you. 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 Peace, will follow you. Let's pray. God of grace and hope and love, God of justice. You've called us to be in Christ, to be known, to participate in your kingdom. May we be people who do that in our own lives, and our own growth, but we also do so as we transform and we reconcile and we restore the systems of our world that are broken. Whether those are family systems, economic systems, political systems, whatever those systems may be, God, we know that you're not done. It's not perfect, but you've called us to something dynamic. So God, help us as we bring your kingdom to earth as it is in heaven, to breathe, to check our blind spots, to be people of justice, to be people that see the flourishing of all humanity, to be people who trust that you're not done with us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining me in this special bonus episode. Hope that it's got you thinking. I hope the conversation continues. And remember, we have one more parable coming out later this week. Thanks again for listening to Deconstructing.